Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. the tech world for a very long time, and I don't remember a week where things have been this crazy since probably the early days of Twitter. So before we jump into our feature interview today, I'm going to sit down with my editor, John Kelly, to take 15 minutes and discuss what in God's earth happened at Uber this week, and perhaps more importantly, what's behind Amazon's great avocado price drop at Whole Foods. And of course, we'll talk about what the new iPhone i8 might do to cure world peace. This is, of course, followed by our regular scheduled programming. John, thanks for joining me. Nick, this is the honor of a lifetime. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Nick, I want to ask you, it's a uh, big week in Silicon Valley. This has sort of been Uber's week. They have a new CEO. Hypothetically speaking, if you had like a billion dollars in the company, would you be psyched right now? I think um, if I had a billion dollars in the company, I would not be wasting my time talking to you, with all due respect. Um, but I would probably be, you know, I'd have a plane or a boat or a few planes or a few boats. Um, I, I think that one of the things um, that for people that do have a billion dollars in the company is that they are worried that it will become a little less than a billion, which is why there's been so much turmoil over the last couple of weeks. Um, I mean, I've been covering these chaotic companies for, for a long time, um, Twitter, of course, being the, the, the main example of that. Um, and this one is, this one without question takes the cake. I mean, it is pure chaos, uh, inside that board, uh, the company, uh, you know, allegiances all over the place that are switching like a good old Game of Thrones episode. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. I got to say it really is. Well, one of the things that sort of fascinates me is that Dara, the new CEO, whose last name is uh, so long and, and unpronounceable that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, but uh, he has an extraordinary series of tasks at hand. A number of senior management and C-suite positions are open. They have to be filled. There is a culture of sexual harassment that he has to root out. That's the culture that was referenced in the Susan Fowler letter from about a year ago. There is a sort of tolerance of this nasty programmer uh, sort of ethos in the company that has to be weeded out, too. And then there's this fractious board, a board that essentially got Kalanick to quit, you know, very uh, soon after his mother passed away in some tragic boating accident. And he's got Kalanick, the co-founder and former CEO, waiting outside with bat wings, looking to try to get back into the company, as you reported earlier this week, What's he going to take on first, and what do you think his Achilles heel might be? Well, I think that, you know, there are, as you just listed, there are a dozen things that Dara has to fix. Um, You know, just one aside is that everyone I've spoken to in Silicon Valley seems to think he is an incredible pick for the company, especially for this company. Um, The the other thing is, um, I don't know where you start uh, with this kind of mess, you know, with the DOJ and 
and so many C-suite positions to fill in a culture that, you know, for seven plus years has been, uh, you know, not a very pleasant culture, a very aggressive one um, uh, that has put women by the wayside and so on and so forth. Um, for Dar, I think one of the things that he is going to start with, um, you know, there's a, a slide that people were talking about this week that, that Dara had presented to the board, uh, which was, uh, don't call me, I'll call you. Um, and um, and I, from people I've spoken to today, actually, I, I heard that slide was actually interpreted incorrectly. It was meant more for Travis Kalanick than it was for the, the, the board of Uber. And, um, and I think that it's really you know, a message to Travis that, hey, look, I'm in charge now. Um, I'm going to call you for input on the way some of the company works and so on. But there is never going to be a world where Travis is running half of the company and Dara is running the other half. Um, I think it's going to be Dara trying to do the whole thing. The problem is, will Travis, you know, put up with that? Um, he very clearly wants to come back as CEO. Um, he does not have a lot of, of alliances on the board um, or allies. Um but that doesn't mean he's going to give up. Um, and so I think it's, you know, the, the biggest challenge for Dara is going to be controlling the board, controlling Travis, um, and fixing all the other things is actually kind of ironically going to be second. It does seem like there was this photograph of Kalanick and Dara and Ariane Huffington and others when the move was announced to the employees of Uber, where everyone is smiling and you can sort of see in their eyes a combination of fear, in some cases mirth, in some cases just genuine disillusionment. But it does seem as though Kalanick has an, an uphill but not impossible battle to turn the board against Dara. I don't want to get too Game of Thrones-like here, but can you sort of lay out some of the scenarios in which he could eventually, over probably the course of a couple of years, somehow reinsert himself at the top of the company? Well, the easiest possible way it would happen is the same way that um, it happened with uh, with Twitter, you know, um, uh, numerous times. Um, Ev Williams took over, uh, was doing a good job at first, then things started to, you know, hurt and user sign up slowed down and, you know, there was literally zero dollars in revenue at the company and so on and so forth. And it made logical sense uh, for Ev to be pushed out and... Um, while Jack Dorsey tried to come back, um, it ended up being Dick Costello who, who came back, and then Dick went through the same thing a few years later after taking the company public. The, so the easiest way for 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 you know Travis to to pull off a coup is for Dara to fail. Um, mm -hmm. The chances of that are you know who knows that's that's still to be decided. I don't think he will, but but at the same time, who knows if he can fix the driverless car issues and so on and so forth as um, uh, at the same time as fixing all these other problems as the future does get closer a lot sooner than, than anyone thinks. Um, the other scenarios are that he manipulates the board. Right now he owns um, technically three board seats, himself included. Uh, he has not assigned anyone to the two other board seats. Um, there are nine board, nine board seats total, including Dara now. So he is outweighed. There is no one other than Travis and his two board seats that would vote for him. But there are scenarios where he could sell stock or convert stock or, you know, convince one other board member, get, you know, SoftBank to, to, to invest, all these different things, which would then uh, actually flip the the weight of, of Travis's impact on the board. And, uh, and that's a scenario, too. But I think for now, I think even Travis knows this. He's kind of going to have to to 
to do all that planning in the background and, and let Dara either fail or succeed and, and then take his steps from there. All right, let's save it to another fascinating valley or, or a tech industry, I guess, non-valley tech industry company, Amazon. A lot of news this week. This sounds ridiculous, but there's a lot of news generating from the fact that Amazon, which now owns Whole Foods, lowered the price of avocados, which certainly made the heart of our colleague Maya Kosoff uh, flutter. Uh, I think millennials around the world rejoiced. What is the play that Amazon is rolling out with Whole Foods? It's not just viewing it as a supermarket, right? It's a sort of R&D lab for, for future products or something like that. I think more than anything, um, it is, um, it's a way, okay, so Whole Foods has been having trouble um, in recent years because uh, foot traffic, um, uh, they, you know, they were the ones that pioneered the whole um, organic food uh, industry um, as far as supermarkets go. But, you know, you go into Ralph's today or even Target and there's organic oranges and things like that. And so uh, they, these other, these larger, you know, supermarket conglomerates can, of course, charge less than Whole Foods could. And so what I think Amazon, one of the things they're doing is, of course, they are treating it like an experiment. And, um, uh, and we, the consumer, in many respects, get to benefit from that. You know, I think that uh, the fact that they've lowered prices so dramatically is a good thing. It's, I think someone tweeted kind of, you know, ironically, um, oh, no, Amazon is going to buy a healthy supermarket and make it less expensive for people to buy healthy groceries. Um, like, that's a bad thing. And, and I think that, you know, so there's that side of it that, 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 is, um, that is really interesting. And I think that also at the same time, you know, Amazon was very tongue-in-cheek when, when, on Monday when, they, uh, when the deal finally went through. When you walked into a, to most Whole Foods, they had um, the, the, the Amazon Echo in the front, uh, which said, you know, farm fresh Amazon Echoes. And that was them saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going all the way. We're going to use this as a placement for our product and vice versa. And we're going to drive people into these stores and we're going to drive them home with more Amazon products. And I think that that, that is the long game uh, throughout. Another long game, uh, Apple is release, uh, releasing its iPhone 8 very, very soon. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a huge technological advance over previous iterations. I guess there's no home button, which is kind of what people are geeking out about now. iPhone is more than half of Apple's revenue, I think. Are you excited about this phone, and what do you think it portends for the short-term future of the world's most valuable company? I am not excited about the phone. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but at this point, they all kind of look the same. They're rectangles. Um, mm-hmm. They're pretty rectangles, take pretty rectangular pictures um, and videos. But for years, I haven't been, you know, excited about about the, the the latest release of these devices. I used to. I remember when the first iPhone came out. I waited in line in Brooklyn for eight hours with a bunch of other people, and you know, it was the most exciting experience of my adult life buying this iPhone and telling everyone and showing everyone it wasn't really the most exciting experience but you get the point and um and now you know when the new iphone came out it took, i like eight months later i was like eh, maybe i should get it and um and i think that you know apple really 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 needs to uh find a new revenue stream um a, a new product line I, I have heard rumors from from folks inside apple that there are there are going to be some other announcements that we haven't hmm. we, that, that have not leaked yet i don't know what they are um uh, they are supposed to be interesting, um, but I, I think yeah, it's definitely. I think it's definitely time for them to to start thinking about what's next. 
Let's transition to a little bit of a speed round here. A um, couple quick questions for you. Apple, Google, or Facebook, if you had a million dollars at hand, which company would you invest it all in? Cryptocurrencies. <laughs> that's not on the I table. Have, I you, mean, if, if, I, if that's not on the table, okay. Well, yeah. I would invest it in cryptocurrencies. What were the, what were the options again? It was Apple, Google, you know, or Facebook? Apple, Google, and Facebook. I'll, I'll enlarge the... Uh, the uh, options to Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Where would you put your money? Well, in normal circumstances, uh, under a, a situation where we had an administration that was actually logical um, and not run by an insane asylum, um, I would mm-hmm. probably go with Amazon. But given that Donald Trump clearly does not like Amazon, um, I don't know there's much he can do legally, but it still uh, gives me a, a little bit heebie-jeebies. Um, so Amazon would be off the table. I think Apple, same thing, until I see their new product line. Um, you know, I don't think, I, I don't trust it. I think it's probably, you know, it's probably Google because um, they are so far along in the driverless car market. Um, mm-hmm. They Their search is not going anywhere. There is no one that is ever competing with them. Um, they have been, you know, doing some incredible work with artificial intelligence, terrifying stuff, but yes. Um, and so on. My, the reason I wouldn't say Facebook is um, because more and more people that I speak to, and myself included, are just so fed up with social media. Um, and while the numbers continue to grow, um, I, I do wonder um, if they will uh, be able to retain people's attention on that platform for long periods of time, for time to come. All right. Let me ask the question a different way. Tim Cook, Sergey and Larry, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, who would you most likely from that group want to have a beer with? I thought you were going to ask if who, would I, who I would want to go to Burning Man with. I, I think Jeff <laughs> Bezos, no questions. I, I think, uh, um, you know, Zuck is a weird guy um, who I don't think is a very, um, uh, I don't think he's a very straightforward person. I think that he's always thinking 75 steps ahead. Larry and Sergey are just kind of weird people. I once had a friend who had a meeting in their office, and um, he said that um, uh, he walked in, and there were, you know, Larry or Sergey was sitting in one of those those massage chairs, wearing like a VR goggle headset, and like Larry was like playing with a drone. There was like he said it looked like the um, the sharper image catalog had exploded in the office. So maybe they'd be fun to hang out with. I don't know. Um, Tim Cook, eh, whatever. Um, I, I think it would definitely have to be Jeff. What company in the Valley right now, or, or what tech company do you think will not be around in 10 years? In the iteration that it exists today, uh, Twitter. Um, I don't think that... Um, I think that it is a company that um, has a very limited... Growth. I don't think that. Um, I think that if you really kind of pulled the the, the covers back, um, you would be left with um, with a company that has a lot less than 333 million users. It would be probably uh, maybe 50 or so million less than that because of all the bots on the network. I probably there's probably even more. There was a study that was done by some researchers where they found bots that are considered real accounts by many politicians and people in the media that have been bought since 2013 and still exist on the network. Um, so I, I just don't think that, I think it'll be around as Twitter. I just don't think it will be what it is today. And I don't think it'll be used in the same way it is today. Um, uh, I just don't think it, that, that it, um, that it's, it's built to, to last that long, honestly. All right. Final question. Speaking of social media companies, 
I'm looking right now at my computer at Snap's stock at their uh, market valuation since they went public. And it looks kind of like a, a diagonal line um, from about $28, $27.09 to about fourteen fifty as we speak right now. And analysts are, are souring on this company all the time. You've been pretty bullish on Snap, and we've talked about it before. You think that the market doesn't quite understand it. Do you still feel that way? Well, if you were to look at um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, a number of companies uh, in the months after um, uh, they went public, um, you will see that same diagonal line pointing downwards. Um, uh, you know, uh, Facebook went public in May of 2012, and if you all the way up to November, um, the stock continued to fall from high 30s to the low mid-teens, um, and then kind of stayed flat for, for another six months. Um, I, I don't think that they're counted out yet. I, I, again, I've said this before, I think that, um, that Evan Spiegel is, is a, one of the smartest product people in the social space. The question is, is, um, is he hungry enough to make the company uh, succeed? Um, and and that, uh, that is still to be determined. But I do think he has a lot of ideas in, up his sleeve. Um, whether he can implement on them is a whole different question. I, I lied to you, Nick. I actually have one other question. The the Uber <laughs> nightmare to me has sort of ex- helped people who don't follow the tech industry as closely realize the very complicated and sort of seedy relationship between venture capital and founders and investors. And we know that Benchmark has been behind a lot of questionable behavior here. They they wrote a basically a twelve million dollar investment into into what could be a, an eight billion dollar exit. They they're the ones that uh, that tried to push Calling out shortly after his mother died. Is there some sort of growing impatience with how VCs run this company? Some sense that they're less interested in the long term health of the companies than they are in the material gain that they stand to receive. Well, I mean, look, if I said to you right now, John, give me $12 and I'm going to hold on to that $12 and in five and a half, sorry, seven and a half years, I'm going to give you back $8,000. You would be like, what do I have to do? And I say nothing. You'd show up for a few meetings here and there, but that's it. Now imagine that you had more money at your disposal. And I said, John, give me $12 million and in seven and a half years, I will give you $8.6 billion dollars. You would be if you if that with that opportunity presented to anyone, they would they would jump on it, uh, not scoff and and whatever. Yet benchmark the investment firm that that that, that invested at the first A round in Uber um, at a fifty million dollar valuation um, is that's how much money they they are going to set to make off their investment, and yet they um, they are going after Travis and threatening their own reputation and the reputation of Uber and so on and so forth. Um, just to ensure that they get more money, and um, and I think that uh, it's a perfect example of um, of the BS behind um, uh, behind the the way these companies are run and the investment the investment by the um, by the venture capitalists and the fact that for them it's really mostly all about the money and that's all it is. That sounds about right, Nick. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My guest today is a legend in journalism. To illustrate just how no-nonsense she is, I'll point out that she spent a decade writing for the Wall Street Journal, then left the paper to write a book titled War at the Wall Street Journal. 
I'm sure her former colleagues enjoyed reading that one. Her name is Sarah Ellison, and she now writes for Vanity Fair about the White House, media, Fox News, Roger Ailes, you name it. This week, Sarah is the talk of the town on an article that she wrote about Jared and Ivanka Trump, which is as salacious as you might imagine. In fact, it's so salacious that the Donald himself is angry about the piece. I'm going to talk to Sarah about the article, about the fracturing world of the right-wing media, and what the long-term effects of Trump's attack on fake news will be for the decades to come. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you had, um, in journalism, there are, there are moments, big, big moments that happen to you. If you work in a newspaper, it's the first time you get your story on the front page, you know, even the first time you see your byline in print, you know, the biggest usually is when you win a Pulitzer or something like that. But, but in the age of Donald Trump, there is actually a bigger prize, which you experienced this week, and that was being hate tweeted by Donald Trump. Is that correct? <laughs> That is correct, and I have to say it felt pretty great, pretty great. So what, what happened? Can you give us a, a little um, – a, a, where were you sitting when you found out that Donald Trump had tweeted something negative about your article? What, 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 was, what was it like? Put you know, I'll shoes. never forget where I was. Um, it's like, you know, the day <laughs> that the challenger – you know, it's all these things, these, these, these significant moments in history. Um, no, but uh, – no, I was do. I was just uh, at my desk. It wasn't actually that exciting. Um, I am a 21st century journalist. So I was just staring at my computer screen, and I think you were actually no. I was on Twitter, and somebody tweeted about it and tagged me in their tweet, and I saw it. Um, and then Nick, you were the first person who actually, who I know, who actually emailed me about it, and I went and I looked at his his tweet. And of course, he said that he didn't name Vanity Fair or me. Um, so there still is actually kind of like a higher, higher thing to, to reach. But um, he said that when he was reading these dying magazines that were something like full of rage, um, he just had to ask one question, why? Um, and then he repeated, all I want to do is MAGA, make America great again. And this is in the midst of one of the worst natural disasters we've seen in this country, of course, um, in Houston. And it was kind of stunning to me that he could take some time out from his disaster response, um, thinking to, to trash Vanity Fair and me relating to this article that I had written earlier in the week about um, Jared and Ivanka. Well, so let's 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 tell our listeners a little bit about what this article is about. Can you give us kind of a bit of a recap and some of the highlights? Sure. Um, you know, the assignment was to just kind of look at this couple and try to ascertain sort of where, how they had been received in Washington. Because the last time that I had really written about them, it was before you know it was after the election, but before inauguration and. They, people are really fascinated by these two. Um, and, I, you know, there had been a, a number of things that had happened. Obviously, Ivanka Trump is his daughter, and Jared was the kind of de facto campaign manager's son-in-law. Um, and they both have pretty big jobs in the White House. And there, there, have been a, there have been like a string of high-profile things that had happened that seemed to be defeats for the two of them, um, you know, starting with the travel ban and the transgender ban in the military, um, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, all kinds of things that 
were wins for the sort of more nativist Bannon faction of the White House. We started working on this story before Bannon had left. Anyway, the point was, I was just trying to look at the two of them in sort of three different chapters. One was how they decided to go to Washington in the first place, what life had been like for them since they got there, and then what's their exit strategy? Um, because they've been pretty clear that they're not going to relocate to Washington permanently. Um, and the amount of time that they actually spend here will be somewhat contingent on how long um, their father and father-in-law are here, but also they're going to probably leave before he is finished serving as president, or maybe not. Maybe the whole thing will be cut short in three months, you know, who knows. Um, but that was the major, that was the outline of what I was was looking at in the piece. Um, so one of the, one of the things that stood out to me is that the people, most of the people you spoke to, despise them as as individuals. I mean, there was that great quote: "What is off-putting about them is they do not grasp their essential irrelevance. They think they are special, and that's kind of how I feel about them." Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, what 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 is it that you know when you are reporting? Does everyone dislike them? Do they are they aware that all these people dislike them? Do they not? Do they understand the irony of the fact that that they are, of course, seen as the sources on stories where they are painted as people trying to switch Trump's point of view? You know, sources close to Jared Novanka that are Jared Novanka said. You know, I mean, right, right. What, right. How no, do they see it? So, I mean, I think that there's, you know, what I've found is yes, there are plenty of people particularly in sort of official Washington, people who've been in D.C. for a long time. But I also think this is, this is a feature outside of Washington, but who, who, who resent them, and not for their own innate value as human beings, but for the, this reason, which is that nepotism is something that Americans just don't like, right? It's a deeply un-American mm-hmm. thing, even though it happens all the time in this country. Um, and even though we're sort of obsessed with the British royal family, but the country was founded on the principle that, like, we were not going to inherit, you know, the king's son as our next king. We were going to get to pick who was ruling us and who, or who was not ruling us, actually. We have a democracy. Um, but the point being that that's sort of something that just irks people in general. So the natural state that Ivanka Trump has lived in her entire life, where she works for her dad, and people around her say, you know, she just is used to working with her dad. This is what she does. And that doesn't really translate to anyone else outside that family, which is like, that's fine if that's what you do in a private business. But that's a, there's a different thing. You don't get to just take a big, big job in the West Wing just because you've always been your dad's employee. And I think that, you know, the way she sees it is, or the way that he would see it, and I, but I think there's, there's separate people, and, and we often, like, lump them together, but she definitely sees this as something where um, this is a relationship that she's always had with her father. She's always worked side by side with him. Um, she didn't even think she was going to take an official role, but she sort of had to because of various ethics rules. And it's really unfair that people are judging her in this way because she's trying to make a positive difference. And the kinds of things that they're working on are unobjectionable on their face. Like Ivanka wants to promote STEM education. She wants to have, you know, promote women's entrepreneurship. And, and, and those are all fine things, but they come as a package with her father and, 
his father-in-law. And there's so many deeply offensive things about what this administration is doing um, that the two of them get wrapped up in this. Now, the, the reason why people who really have started more recently to hate them is because at the beginning, people were giving them sort of the benefit of the doubt. They thought that they would be these sort of sort of moderating influences. And if there was... Oh, know, yeah. There was, the, there was a... Go a ahead. There was one point, sorry, just to interrupt real quick. There was one point I remember in the early days of um, when uh, the, the administration where people would tweet um, on Friday afternoons the, how many minutes it was until sundown, until the so- Sabbath, because it was assumed that Jared and Ivanka were going to, you know, go off the grid and, and totally. Trump would go off, off, the, off the grid, <laughs> quite literally. Yeah, right. sorry. Yeah, no, there was, that, that was, a, there was this early Saturday Night Live skit where um, you know, it was, it was after, it was on, it was Saturday, you know, or after sundown on Friday and Steve Bannon as, as personified by the Grim Reaper on the Saturday, in the Saturday Night Live skit got to come out and they got to do all of the bad stuff that was going on in the, in the administration. And there has been this theme that, well, that the worst things happen, um, on, after sundown on Friday. And so, so there was the, um, there was this sense that they were, and they may be, I mean, the, the defense of them is, oh, you don't know what they've prevented from happening. They have really done that. Um, but I think that, that the problem now is that there have been so many things that have happened that they have apparently not been able to influence um, that they don't justify their existence, right? Like, what are you, what yeah. makes you... Why do you, who do you think you are? Why are you allowed to have that job? Your value is access to the principal. If you can't actually influence the principal, then what are you doing here? So, so what do you think? Do you think that that um, from your report? And look, I get she's Ivanka is her her. It's her father. It's his father-in-law. Do you get the impression that that in another setting, if they weren't in the White House, that they would that they would actually do they actually like him? Do they actually admire Donald Trump? Do they think that he is a good influence in the world? I mean, and it's I get look, it's difficult to say when it's when it's a family member, but I have family members that I don't think are good influences in the world. <laughs> And, yeah. <laughs> you know, so do, do, do they see the, do they see that? I mean, I think that she has, I can't possibly know what she really thinks of her father, but she definitely loves him and really um, seems to respect him in some way. I mean, I think that, I mean, I agree that it's, it's my seven-year-old said, well, if daddy did something really bad, I think I would still kind of love him and be nice to him. I was like, well, we'd have to talk about that because, I, you know, you can't support everything <laughs> that your father does. But anyway, um, point, but, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Jared had to forgive his own father whom, who went to prison many years ago for really tawdry stuff. Um, I think Ivanka, you know, I, I asked somebody months ago about how does she feel about all the creepy stuff her dad says about her? And because he makes these kind of frequent comments 
about if she weren't my daughter, I perhaps I'd be dating her and all those kinds of things. And I think he used a little. This, I think he used a little more colorful language than that. But yes. Well, I mean, I, I was one of the comments, but but again, I don't want to. Pile yeah, I, I heard. Let's be I heard one in the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the response that you heard? That um, she she knows her father has flaws. Um, but she sort of accepts him for who he is. She knows exactly who he is and she accepts him. And that's, you know, I think that that's, I, the, the, I think that's possible and probable. Um, the more jaundiced view is that Jared and Ivanka are so ambitious that who, who could turn down the opportunity to be at the seat of power like this? Um, what's better on your resume than being a uh, top aide in the West Wing and that, you know, this is sort of a stepping stone for them. I mean, there there is this sense that maybe, and I don't think that this is, there, there used to be this sense, I don't think this really exists anymore, that Donald Trump was simply their advance team, that they were going to, you know, they were so... They were so ambitious and they were so much more polished than he was that he was going to, he got them in the door through his strange racist nativist campaign and that they were going to really conquer the world. And I think the difference between that kind of hope and where they are right now was really what made the peace was really what defined the arc of the peace is that the two of them now are, are sort of increasingly dragged into the dirtiest business of this administration. Um, and it's been pretty rough for them. And not that a lot of people care about how rough it's been for them, but certainly the expectations have changed from their perspective about what they're going to be able to accomplish and what they're going to be able to do. But the thing that's so strange to me is, you know, I, I have friends who worked with Jared, um, in the newspaper business when he did that briefly. I, I know Jared's brother, mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and, and, and there is one thing that connects them all and it is not, they're not, it's not that they're in the West Wing because they want to make the world a better place or help disenfranchise poor people or any of those things. It is for their own personal gain. Um, right. and, and I, and, and the thing that I don't understand is how the narrative even began that they were going to make the world a better place, that they were going to solve these world's problems, because not only have they not, never had to face the majority of the problems that Americans have, but they don't care. And if they did care, they would have the things that they've done leading up to the life that they live today would have been very different. Um, totally. Was that just a, a narrative of was it just a narrative of hope, like okay? this this is, looks terrifying. Oh, good. There's two people that look like they're not terrifying. They're walking in the same door. You know, it, it, this might work out okay. I mean, I think our capacity for um, telling ourselves things that will make us feel better is great. And so it's very possible that the whole idea that Jared and Ivanka were going to be the salvation of the country was completely self-delusional because if you do, you're exactly right. Um, there's nothing that either of them has done in their lives that would lead anybody to believe that they want to improve the world um, or that they have any bone of public service in their body or that they've done anything. I mean, Jared is, is a philanthropic 
with with Jewish causes and things like that. But but these are these are not people who have. I guess this is another thing that people kept saying that was really to use the term off putting again is that what makes them think that they could actually solve any of the things that they want to solve when people who have worked their entire lives and are experts in these topics have not yeah I mean, they have not yet done it like what who do you think you are to be able to kind of take that stuff on i think that that's you know now we're here we're going to roll up our sleeves and figure out you know why women make you know 78 cents on the dollar you're like okay great go for it you get get on that ivanka do you think um uh uh two questions um one very very briefly do you think that ivanka has grander political ambitions i don't think i mean personally i don't think jared ever does because he just doesn't like public speaking and he seems to be someone who prefers to be in the background Um, correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like ivanka could i think she did i really think that she did um, she, I don't think has those anymore. I think that, um, the private sector suits her better. Um, I think that they've real, they, the, their reception in politics has been so, um, sour, I, but I do think that she did at the outset. She seemed like, you know, she was on a wave and people loved her at the beginning and, um, her coverage was really positive and that changed to the moment that the um muslim travel ban came down then everybody decided all bets are off yeah i think it it um uh it's yeah it's been a very quick fall for for them for for donald trump too but of course of course for them so so last question on this topic and and then we'll switch gears a little bit um what was the most surprising thing uh that you discovered in your reporting Oh, um, what was the most surprising thing that I discovered in my reporting? I guess, um, I mean, this is sort of just, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I was really surprised that Ivanka would be so naive. And this relates to just one anecdote in the story that she tried to sort of get Planned Parenthood to stop performing abortions in order to kind of maintain funding for them. And it's such a central thing um, in women's health, even though Planned Parenthood doesn't even provide that many abortions. It was just such an offensive and weird, naive thing for her to do that it made me see her as truly without principle and truly just a deal maker to see if she could like sort of trade horse trade a little bit. And that really alienated a a huge portion of her like natural base um, which would be women and, you know, professional women. Fun, fun, fun. Um, okay. So let's, uh, let's move away from Javanka. Um, okay. uh, and, um, let's go to, to, to some Fox news coverage here. So you've been covering, uh, the media for how, how many years now? Eight, I think. Eight years. And, and specifically Fox and Roger Ailes and so on and so forth. And it seems that the media today, the landscape, um, and you and I have spoken about this. We actually spoke about this on the, uh, at the French Riviera uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year. Um, to humble brag there. <laughs> La-di-da. Um, uh, it, it seems like the, 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 the right-wing media, and I believe this has already happened in the left-wing media, um, uh, in the left-wing media, 
there the, the, the have been fractions, um, uh, fa- and fractions, sorry, of, of media displacement. And so in left-wing politics, it seems that, you know, you've got the New York Times and, and Gawker and these blogs and things like that that came about. But also social media played a, a big role in, mm-hmm. in dividing who, who had control of the conversation. But it, it hasn't necessarily happened specifically in the right-wing media until the last couple of years. And now it seems like there's, there's like a royal rumble about to take place, that, that Steve Bannon um, uh, is, is back at Breitbart. He wants to take on Fox, apparently wants to, to create his own TV series. Um, yeah. he, he wants to become an empire. And at Fox, you, you know, you, you've had all the tumult that you've covered, um, and it seems like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson are the only two two big names there right now, at least the ones I remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. What's going on in, 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 in this environment right now? Is it, and, and how do you think it's going to play out? Well, so it's interesting because as you were talking, I realized that I lied about how long I've been covering the media um, because I remember meeting Roger Ailes, the sort of co-founder and CEO of Fox News, former CEO of Fox News, um, at the 10th anniversary of Fox News. And so that happened 10 years ago. And I was not covering him yet, but I was almost covering him. So I think it's been about 10 years that I've been covering the media, but that is not what's interesting about this. What's interesting about this is that at the time, Fox was then a real player and quite dominant, but that was kind of new um, for them, or you know, five years out for them. They were still... When Fox launched, everybody dismissed it. Um, nobody thought that Rupert Murdoch was really going to be able to pull it off. It was a total upstart, outsider um, place. And it was mocked. And the people who've been there and who were there for you know the whole 20 years that it's been around um, will remind you very much of that all the time, that they used to be completely dismissed. And so it was this outsider narrative and, and, and they created themselves and Ailes did this um, very successfully to the point though, now where it became so successful and so big that it's now occupied a little bit more of a kind of establishment position. And it's, and, and particularly now that Ailes has passed away and, Rupert Murdoch's sons, whose politics are sort are different than his, or at least they aren't as they're a different generation. And James Murdoch, the CEO of of 21st Century Fox, is giving money to the Anti Defamation League in the wake of the Charlottesville um, neo Nazi protest, which is the kind of thing that just would like irritate Sean Hannity and make it make the whole place seem a little bit too mainstream. And so they really left themselves an opening left, sorry, Breitbart, the Breitbarts of the world and the Infowarses of the world who are truly, really right-wing and kind of crazy, um, a, a little avenue in. And it sort of mimics what's going on in the Republican Party with like the Freedom Caucus and the really obstinate um, factions of the Republican Party who are standing up and hate Mitch McConnell and the kind of more establishment Republicans. A lot of that is... is mimicked in what's going on in in right-wing media right now and it's a really fascinating time 
So do you think that um, is Breitbart where Fox was 10 years ago? I mean, they're, they're, you know, made fun of by a lot of people. They're the underdog. Is there a chance that they become Fox News in 10 years? You know, I don't think that there's ever going to be another Fox News in the sense that we're not going to have a media, one media outlet that's that, that completely occupies um it's that big, that's that, 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 that's that sort of broad, you know? So yes, I think it's very possible that Breitbart will be the kind of 21st century version of Fox, but that's inherently going to be a more niche product than what Fox is. What's going to be interesting though, is like, you know, this better than I do in terms of the, the new media upstarts and the way technology is sort of changing all this is that the people there will have to be a real generational shift in the Fox News audience is pretty old. Um, I don't really know the demographics of the Breitbart audience, but the idea that you're going to have. Sorry. Crazy. I said they're crazy. Yeah. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's, a, it's like a, it's a, it's a horizontal um, demographic, not vertical, but yeah, I think that, that, yeah. that, um, that, are these cord cutters? Are these the people who are going to go for an over-the-top platform? Um, are they listening to podcasts? Are they, like, it's a totally different, and I don't really yeah. know the answer. It's, but I think it, it will require, the, the, like, the, younger people to get involved. Like, I think there are a lot of young, I mean, I do think that there is, like, the Breitbart audience does have some young people, and, of course, there are young conservatives who watch Fox News, but it just seems like a different seems like a different kind of um, outlet. Yeah, I think that it's it's going to be um, – it's definitely going to be interesting um, to see how this all plays out. I think that, you know, I think that everyone thinks the media has been, has been kind of broken up over the last few years because of social media. I, I think we're at the very, very beginning of it. I don't actually think we've seen anything at all that really has changed. It's almost like with Hollywood and, and Netflix, people say, oh, Netflix changed Hollywood. No, it changed the distribution of it. That was it. It didn't change mm-hmm. the creation of, of movies or TV shows or sure, binge watching is a new thing. But other than that, it's exactly the same and it works the exact mm-hmm. same way. And I think mm-hmm. the same thing has happened with media where the distribution has changed and how we get things is not necessarily on our doorstep in the morning, but it's on our phone through Twitter and social media and so on. Um, but I think that there's still a reckoning to happen um, to actual to act- the actual media industry and institutions like the New York Times and, and Fox and so on. So, yeah, I think you're right, and I think that with you know, and on the on the side of like when you talk to people at Breitbart, they really see um, one of their main targets as the mainstream media, and they include Fox in that, um, and that they're going to have mm-hmm. this like you know. MAGA nation revolution in the media, just the way Trump did in politics. And that will be, they will be the kind of vanguard of that. And I think that, you know, they're not crazy to think that (laughs) they might be crazy in a lot of other ways, but they aren't crazy to kind of have those hopes given where the kind of media landscape is. So going back to Fox for one, for one minute, um, the um, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, Putting aside that Tucker all, always looks, he's always squinting in a way that it looks like he's going to the bathroom at that current yeah, moment in time. He's always like squinching, um, kind I, of, yeah. Eh, um, 
what is what I don't understand, you know, the Murdoch sons, they can't like those people. I mean, they are, you know, they seem like the Murdoch boys seem like they're pretty smart. I, I mean, I understand they want ratings, but can you am I crazy? Am I wrong? But I don't know. I mean, I think they're fine. I think that they're sm- I'm sure they're perfectly like I don't really know. I think smart is an overused thing that we say about wealthy people because you have to be really, really that's stupid funny. and have money to be seen as not smart. Whereas like we manage, I don't, but that's a, that's a separate conversation. We could do that in another, in another segment, but um, I think they're fine. I think like the question you're asking about whether or not they, they, the person that they really liked at Fox news and the person that they really wanted to stay was Megan Kelly. And they made that super clear. They offered her a $100 million contract, $25 million a year over four years. They made this preemptive upfront offer, put it on the table, and just no conditions. They just really wanted her to stay because she was the kind of conservative that they felt comfortable with, that they would – they you know, she was successful. She was a big star there, the second biggest star after Bill O'Reilly. And, um, and that's who they wanted to be the new face of Fox news, as you point out, not Sean Hannity, who is to kind of an embarrassment for them. I mean, these, they go out to dinner parties with their friends who are probably the kinds of people that Jared and Ivanka went out to dinner parties with, although Jared and Ivanka are younger, but just these kind of like wealthy New York or LA types who like vaguely believe in climate change and other things like the world is round and and um and i think that there's sort of like the neo, neo-nazis are bad neo-nazis are bad like that yeah. would be the kind of thing like everybody at their dinner party would be able to agree on not so at uh at sean hannity's dinner party perhaps but um no anyway no. i think that that kind of stuff like they they don't like i mean i know within the fox news newsroom there was a deep mistrust of the of the Murdoch boys as they are still unfortunately known even though they're older than both of us um they're and we're no spring chickens as you know but the um the thing about them is that they're just I think that they don't they don't know those they don't know the Murdoch sons the people in the newsroom they don't they don't think that the Murdoch sons really like Fox News that much and I think they're kind of right at the same time, hmm. James and Lachlan have been handed this extremely large company by their father, and Fox News is a massive profit machine. So they don't want to screw that up. That would be very embarrassing and bad for their future employability, and it would just be like disrespectful to their father, who they're both, you know afraid of and really like and love um, if they let the whole thing go down the toilet. I talked to some people after Charlottesville. So I mentioned this once before in this conversation that that James gave a million dollars to the anti-defamation league after Charlottesville. And he sort of gave this kind of scolding statement that I can't believe I even have to say this, but neo-Nazis are bad and, and we can't, we can't, you know, he was sort of criticizing Trump for his, for his lack of a response. And I talked to people inside Fox who 
were really couldn't believe that James did that because hmm. there you have Hannity out there completely defending the president in lockstep with him. And and I think they feel kind of like Rupert would always have been in in line um, with the most conservative anchors there. And I did, think they just feel like did, the, did, James and Michael, their heart isn't in it. Did, did, did someone like, did Rupert get upset that, that they did that or? Uh, did did I Rupert? Mean, no, that... I don't think Rupert got upset that James did that. I mean, I think James's gesture was seen as pretty hollow. Cause if you really wanted to make a difference about, um, you know, what people were saying about, um, neo-Nazis or the, or race relations in this country, he would, he actually runs a very large news organization that seems to spew a lot of, um, racist rhetoric. So he could have made a bigger impact yes. doing something like that. But, but anyway, that's a, that's, um, I don't think that Rupert was, I mean, I think I, I, I'm not aware of any, um, tension between Rupert and James on that front. I do think that if James does that, continues to do that kind of thing, and alienates some of the more, some of the more um, radical parts of Fox News, he's going to end up ruining it. He's going to end up, as a business. He's going to run it into the ground. Please do it more. Please do it more. Please do it more. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, uh, okay, so uh, last couple of questions here, um, uh, and then we'll let you get back to uh, to your your reporting on Javanka. Um, <laughs> As someone who's been covering the media for such a long period of time, um, mm-hmm. the last couple of years with Trump's assault on it must be pretty shocking. It is for me, and I don't actually cover the industry. I work in it, but it's still shocking. Um, what do you think that the long-term effects are of this? I mean, it's interesting. I I wrote a uh, um, I did a podcast with someone a couple weeks back, and they didn't like the headline of the of the article that went with it and um and they te- were texting me irate and then ended the text thread with fake news in all caps and i thought wow and this is someone who hates trump who is very okay. liberal and whatnot and i thought to myself wow how how quickly the little meme becomes can be used against us and yeah. do you think that 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 at the end of all of this that um that the whole fake news thing will kind of go away, or is this is this just the future? And and what are the effects on on that from all sides of of, of the political spectrum? Um, well, I think this is a great question because it kind of draws a through line from Roger Ailes to Donald Trump to all of our dim futures in this arena, but. So if there was one person who created a major, um, you know, Roger Ailes' whole business was telling people that the mainstream media was lying to you. And there was an alternate alternate reality and alternate facts that you could believe and that were real, fair and balanced. You know, that was the whole, his whole um, motto. And I think he created the kind of atmosphere where people could really mistrust what they heard on the news. And Trump and, and you know, Fox and Friends gave um, Donald Trump a, a call in every week to, to be able to talk about how Barack Obama wasn't really born in this country and that he had a fake birth certificate. And now what we have is, um, you know, and I should say that Obama has done plenty, had did plenty of things during his presidency to go after um, journalists and yeah. leakers. And he created a really, you know, a really hostile environment 
for um, for journalists. But what Trump has done is he's added like a cultural element to that, where people really see journalists as completely dishonest, and um, and I think that they're given even more license to to not trust what they read. And so those two things together, those two elements, the legal sort of precedent um, that's been set, but also the kind of mentality that you, that that people, who are, the, the journalists are lying to you, that they have some hidden agenda, that they're trying to mislead you in all these different ways. I mean, that's really dangerous because culture, the culture leads um, and then like, you know, the law follows and, and, and I think that that's the combination of those two things, people really not liking the media, not trusting it and thinking the media is pro- providing, you know, fake news. Um, that's a really toxic combination when you have Trump's Justice Department going really aggressively after journalists and leakers. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole idea of the fourth estate's in a pretty frightening place. And I've never seen it like that um, with all of those different pieces together in one big pot. So on the, in the same vein, um, uh, and you, well, this is the last question for you. Um, I, I was covering, um, I remember when the election happened in, uh, in France and um, I've been covering hackers and, and bots and all these things for a long time. And I was amazed that the media in France, when, um, uh, when all of Macron's uh, personal files and so on were leaked, uh, with clearly by the Russians, clearly with the, uh, an objective of swaying the election um, uh, earlier this year, the, the media chose not to publish the, those leaks um, because they knew that it was an outside force trying to do something bad to the country. Mm-hmm. And yet in America... There, even you know, I mean, I personally don't believe that that the media should have covered Hillary's emails in the way that they did, um, uh, and I think that it it's it it is it, it puts it it creates a, a society where we accept the bad things that are done and the illegal things that are done with the with a goal of affecting our own democracy, um, just to kind of get help one news organization get ahead a little further in a story, and I and I wonder. You know, there, and I remember speaking to someone in France about this, and I said, you know, why is it that you didn't, why that this, this stuff wasn't leaked? And this, of course, there's laws in place and things like that, but still, um, there was a, a conscious decision made. And someone said to me, you know, we don't have the equivalent of a Sean Hannity over over here. Like, we don't. There's no Rachel Maddow. Or there's no. It's that it's a much more even keeled um, response with news. And I, and I wonder, do you think that we will, we, it seems that American media has, has plotted along in a very aggressive way to this divergence that mimics society in a, in, in the same respect, mimics our partisan views that, that we no longer are, are capable of, of discussing. Do you think that there'll be you know, I believe that we will eventually figure out a way that there will be candidates that will somehow try to draw people back together. Do you think that there will be a world in which the media tones down the rhetoric that we see today, or is this just kind of it? Um, I would like to think that there will be a way, and I actually think there might be, like, that. maybe I'm super naive, 
about this, that like technology might be able to help fact check things, um, even though technology has led to so much of the like sp- ability to spread false things. Um, there is some things are true and some things are false. And so it's not just partisan media um, that's an issue. It's the idea that, that, that we follow um, stories that are incorrect all the time. So I think that, I mean, the problem is there is a First Amendment, and I do think that that's that's quite a um, powerful justification for covering Hillary's emails. I mean, and and I think that that people feel really deeply that you can't censor um, things. I think that's kind of a different issue than than the idea of a partisan media and one that is driven by a profit motive probably has more to do with the way that they were covered than the fact that they were covered at all, right? Like if they were covered in a very sober way and you say like, these were private emails and we're not going to cover them all every single day. We're going to just give you, um, yeah, relevant I, guess bits of information. I guess it was probably, yeah, it's the way that they were covered too. I mean, I think, you know, there's been the research that looks back at just the New York times, which I know overcompensates for the fact that it is a, a very liberal, leaning news outlet like that they to say okay well we're going to cover the conservative issues more and of course they put hillary's emails on the front page more than any news outlet out there um i, I don't know maybe it's just a, a hope and the, a hope that that in the future there won't be a sean hannity or a rachel maddow and i'm not being i'm not picking sides when i say that i do believe that they're both as bad as each other um hmm. in the fact that they present one side of an argument um so i guess the question i was asking is more of will we always have these divisive people in American media or or will maybe we kind of at some point get to a point where things kind of tone down a little? I think it'll tone down. I think it's a pendulum, you know, it'll swing. I think people are going to get tired of this Um, because it's like, it's, we're all in our own little filter bubbles and, um, and everyone's frothing for whatever you know, whether you're watching Rachel Maddow and you really love her, you're watching Sean Hayes and you really love him, there's going to be a moment where, like, the water recedes and everybody sees that we've made sort of fools of ourselves, I think. Um, and I hope that that happens because, I don't know, I like truthful reporting that's, like, a little bit less overheated than what we've what we've seen. I think that, and I guess I just think that, like, I do have some faith that that people will get tired of it too. Like, the audiences will get tired of it, and maybe that's wishful thinking. But I'm with you on that. That I think it will change. I think that it will sort of swing back. Well, well, I'm tired of it, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, everyone should go and read Sarah's story on Javanka. Am I saying Thanks. it right? Am I pronouncing it right? Javanka. Javanka. You know, I don't love that term, but I think you're right. It's Javanka. Um, what yep. What should I call them? Should I? Jared is there an, another Ivanka? name for the two headed? No, monster? I mean that's it. It's oh Jared. come on, it's Javanka. I think I guess it's. I find it to be kind of like, you know, I don't know. I don't. It's unfortunate. I think Javanka. Um, but yep, Javanka. that's it. Read. Definitely read the story, whatever you want to call them. Go read the story. I hope everybody likes it. Um, and, you know, until the next time, I'm I think, so glad that you could have me come on. Thank you so much. And I think we should give our listeners, let's just tell them this weekend, it's Labor Day weekend, go enjoy yourself. Don't watch the news. Don't go on Twitter. Just go read a book. 
and Go listen to this podcast and enjoy yourself. Read a, listen, yeah, listen to this on the beach. Awesome. Happy, yes. happy Labor Day weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Take you care. so much. Thanks to my guest this week, Sarah Ellison. Be sure to read her article on the Vanity Fair website or in the magazine. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their wonderful production work and to my editors at Vanity Fair. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.